This is a special celebrity edition of Voices of Texas. Recording in Midland, Texas, here's your host, Matthew Hinman. Welcome to a special celebrity edition of Voices of Texas. And today I'm joined by one of the funniest comedians on television and the internet. He's got an amazing stage magic show. He's been featured on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He's the host of Nat Geo's television series, Hacking the System. He's hosted several internet podcasts like Scam School, a weekly comedy show called Night Attack, Cord Killers, Weird Things. This guy's all over the place. From Austin, Texas, Brian Brushwood. Welcome to Voices of Texas. Holy cow. Thanks for having me on, Matthew. And I, I, for the record, I'm still uncomfortable being called a comedian, and I don't know why, <laughs> because I guess being a magician, everything's very structured, and you know, you're, you're, you're going for that wow surprise, and you want laughs along the way. But then somebody called me a, a comedian, and uh, and part of me wanted to argue, and then they were like, uh, "Dude, how many number one comedy albums do you and Justin need to make before you can accept being called a comedian?" I was like, "Exactly." Right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great to have you here, and you know, frequently here on the show, my Texan guests tend to be of little fame, but I really thought it appropriate to bring in a celeb every now and then, kind of just to shake things up. And uh, I, I say, I say, I, I always qualify it. I, I'm internet famous, which means yeah. I have impressive numbers on the internet, but I could still get a cup of coffee without anyone having any idea who I am. Don't get mobbed at the coffee shop well you know honestly that's that's the beauty of the internet of course this is an internet program you know we're not all over the the broadcast uh arena so you know people who listen to podcasts are going to recognize you i guarantee sure. you well, that, but that's so. the funny part like uh we we, we went to uh nab uh the broadcaster show in vegas and walk around there and the weirdest thing is people won't recognize my face but then I'll start talking and then they'll, they'll suddenly start and they'll turn and be like, are, are you Brian Brushwood? <laughs> because enough people are doing audio only. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's funny how that works. Uh, I, I ran into a couple of uh, friends that I hadn't seen in uh, several months, probably about six or seven months, ran into them up in North Texas here a while back. And uh, they said, oh, I listened to your show. And I went, you do? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, you listen to my like, show? A, a true fan in the wild? I can't the, believe it. You're my one fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but it, it is, it's really, uh, really privileged having you on. Uh, like I said, I've been a, a fan now for about seven years. I haven't followed all the content, but I'm a huge fan of Scam School and Hacking the System. And, and of course, I'm just kind of digging into some of your other shows out there. So it, it's cool to, to have another person who started out. Uh, you know, like I am just in the podcasting uh, arena moving on. So tell me about uh, growing up in Texas. Uh, uh, have you always been in Austin? Uh, no, 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 no. I, uh, I was born in Southern California, but at the age of um, five, my dad worked in the oil biz. He worked for Douglas Oil, which uh, got bought or uh, uh, merged with uh, Conoco. And then we got the offer to move to Houston. So it was a big deal. Five years old, we moved out to north of Houston in a little subdivision called Greenwood Forest and uh, spent about a year and a half there. And then uh, my dad just said yes to every opportunity uh, that the company gave him. So then uh, to explore shale oil in Colorado, when I was in second grade, we went up and spent a year outside of uh, Denver and Littleton. Then we uh, then uh, moved back to Texas. In this case, we ended up in uh, West Texas, just out, or I'm sorry, West Houston, just outside of uh, uh, Katy, Texas, and uh, spent most of my elementary school years there. But then Dad got a chance to have a part of the uh, the offshore drilling in Norway, so we moved out to, uh, to to Stavanger, Norway, for a year and a half, and then moved back to the same neighborhood in uh, Katy. For uh, for high school, so I graduated Katy High School in Texas, and 
from there, uh, <laughs> my dad said yes again and ended up going down to Ven Venezuela for uh, for development out there. There, while uh, while I went to college and went to uh, University of Texas at Austin, and I, to be honest, I, you know, you have a bunch of confused thoughts when you're a kid, and one of my confused thoughts was, man, I don't think I like Texas. It's not cool enough for me. And then I got to Austin, and I was like, oh wait, I. It's not that I don't like Texas. I just didn't care for Houston that much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once I came to Austin, I fell in love with it, and I've been here ever since. Uh, Austin's amazing town. I, I, there, there's just, and I, I've got a funny story I'll tell you about uh, being down there here recently. And, you know, everybody knows that Austin's slogan is keep Austin weird. Yeah. They're doing a real good job um, because uh, I, we were having uh, drinks on this awesome little uh, corner bar. It's called Corners down at the bottom of the JW Marriott. And uh, we're sitting there having drinks uh, after this little business show we'd been to. And, and here come uh, these two guys walking down. And one of them's carrying the sign that says, need money for weed. And I'm thinking, only in Austin, Texas, what, can that happen? Sure. And then, uh, and then uh, well, I guess uh, uh, in Austin and uh, all of Colorado and uh, Washington and most Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably true now too. Well, listen, um, so moving around, uh, in oil like that, I guess, you know, you think of military kids getting, getting stuck with like that. How did that, how did that affect you? How, how is that, uh, affecting Brian Brushwood going through school? You know, uh, there, there, there's the obvious way, which means I, I learned how to make friends quickly, right? I understood that when you come into a new space, you're the new kid and you kind of audition and, but here's the weird part is looking back, there were some times I did a good job of kind of falling into the rhythm of whatever area I was in and finding, you know, friends here or there. Um, but there were other times that were dismal failures. Like I look back and I still cringe at how I introduced myself to everyone when I was in seventh grade in Norway. It's like it was a very small school and it took me months to kind of live down the, the, the jerky persona that I was trying to, to adopt because I was, you know, I was so nervous about how I'd be accepted. And, uh, a weird side effect of all of this is I'm convinced that I, that it's a big part of what made me an entertainer or, or attempting to be an entertainer is this this lack of fear of a long-lasting reputation. Because growing up, I never spent more than three years with a reputation. It was no small town that people would you know would never let me live down you know this or that embarrassing thing. So I just always had this idea of like, yeah, try whatever, and then in three years, nobody will remember and it won't matter. You know, go for it. As you're, you're a continual work in progress. Oh my gosh. Uh, constantly rediscovering and evolving. Uh, you know, when I was at, man, in the late nineties, all I wanted to do was do 3d modeling and animation for video games. And instead the, you know, I ended up working for, for Dell designing, you know, uh, for customers, you know, custom workstations and networks. And, uh, along the, the way magic was always, weirdly, I didn't really respect magic very much. It was, it just seemed too easy to me. Like, ah, uh, you get up, you do the trick and they're all amazed, but you're just a fake wizard. You didn't really do anything. If it's this easy, it can't be that good. And, but, but I, you know, I adored getting up and interacting with people and the, the electricity of the moment. And, uh, it was just sort of this crux moment of, of, I want to take a year and get this out of my system. I want to try it. I don't want to wonder what always might've been, and then, uh, you know, four years later, I'm touring 
200 uh, days on the road doing colleges with a 90-minute stage show and uh, making appearances on television and uh, the, the Tonight Show. And then from there, it's like, well, let me, you know, let me see if I can write a lecture, lecture and talk smart for a bit. And so I wrote a, a skeptical lecture called Scam, Sasquatch, and the Supernatural, all about uh, the psychology of uh, critical thinking and the way our minds trick ourselves, sort of a magician's perspective. And then from there, you know, the internet started to blow up and YouTube. So I just kept saying yes to everything. And man, there's a lot of falling flat on my face that's been recorded for all of history. Well, in the timeline things, uh, uh, you went to UT Austin. How in, did that fall into the timeline of, of uh, you know, becoming this, uh, this stage magician? Do you know, I, I did a little bit of theater in high school, a couple of plays, and, and I liked it pretty well. It seemed like an awful lot of work to me. But when I came to Austin, I had the opportunity for the first time ever to just pick a hobby out of the blue. So for the first time in my life, there was only two hours a day that I absolutely had to be somewhere. So I would do things like try to follow, you know, bizarre sleep schedules where I'd stay up all night, go to class, and then come home and go to bed. I would, uh, I would pick up random hobbies. Uh, and one of those was magic and magic really stuck because there was something precious to me. It occurred to me that no matter where I ended up in life, it would be good to know a few cool magic tricks. And that's the big thing when I went to college was I just didn't know what I wanted to be when I grow up. I didn't want to grow up. And so instead I was like, well, I'll learn magic in the meantime and that'll be a good side gig. And very quickly in the dorm, you know, I was the magic guy and I would perform for everyone. Uh, and in the program I was in, the Plan to Honors program is this interdisciplinary liberal arts program where the first two years are very structured. They tell you, take all these writing courses, take these histories, take these math and science courses. And then the last two years of the program are pretty much wide open. You take whatever is related to your thesis. And this is this is the trick of it, is that you had to have a senior thesis. And it was a no-joke thesis. For an undergrad program, there were people writing their first novel. There were people writing, you know, 200-page histories of uh, famous figures or not yet famous figures. And I remember thinking like, ah, so hard. It's going to be hard to do that. Maybe I can, maybe I can make it magic-related. That would at least make it interesting. Maybe I could get a trick published. Maybe I could you know, write a history of something or I, I don't know. So I went in to meet with the dean and I got as far as saying the phrase, the phrase, uh, well, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been doing magic on the side. And then as I'm saying this, I sort of trail off because she starts shaking her head and grinning and throws her arms up in the air and says, and you'd like to do a magic show as a creative writing thesis. What a great idea. And I was like, and in my mind, I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, trying to hide my smell and was like, yeah, that's that's what I thought. And uh, for the next two years, that was what I did was I was like, well, oh, man, I pulled a fast one on the university. I, I, I took classes like a history of witchcraft, uh, languages of science fiction, pseudoscience and the paranormal psychology, you know, all because they were, quote unquote, related to my thesis. And then uh, and I would just do magic shows here and there on the side. And then I met with an advisor and gave him video. And then once I graduated, you know, we did a, a nice, you know, 45 minute stage show. And I was at the time I spent the entire time thinking that I was pulling a fast one. Like, look at me. I'm not even having to do real work. I, I scammed the university. And yet, uh, you know, by the time I graduated, I had this asset. I had this 40 minutes of stage material. So I kept doing it. And then uh, eventually, once it became my full time job, it hit me sometime around early 2000s. I was like, son of a gun. I'm the only guy I know 
who actually uh, performs within his major. You know, I'm the only yeah. guy who actually went to college, got a degree and does exactly what he studied to do. Well, I know I don't. <laughs> I know I don't. What was uh, your degree in? Well, I actually got an aviation degree. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I haven't touched an airplane in 12 or 13 years. So uh, uh, I thought you were yeah. going to reveal that you were actually at 30,000 feet as we recorded uh, this. Man, that'd be awesome. Uh, <laughs> but, but no. So how did you get your, uh, what was your first big television appearance, your first big breakout there? Oh my gosh. No. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to, we're going to pretend like it's a big breakout, but the truth is nobody cared and nobody noticed. But uh, I, I, once I had some material, I was like, wow, it seems like people who have been on television are able to have a much easier time getting booked. So I should be on television. No, no qualifications. This is a uh, 99. And, uh, you know, so I, I made a little demo reel. I, I did a, I four walled a stage show at, uh, the Hyde Park theater here in Austin, Texas, got some decent video on a little DV cam. And I edited together a little seven-minute collection of the stuff I do, fire eating, sticking a nail in my eye, the human crazy straw where I take 30 feet of tubing and eventually run it up my nose and out my mouth, all this gross-out magic and straitjacket escapes. And, uh, and I was thinking there's got to be a better way to get the word out. And again, it's so hard to even remember the days before the internet was the direct way to do all of this stuff. Yeah. When yeah. you had to mail a VHS tape to people and you had to track down what the mailing address was. So I went to, I went and uh, got a list of all the daytime, nighttime talk shows and, uh, and I put it together and I just started calling the ticket line for each of them saying, Hey, who's the person in charge of booking you know, weird, uh, uh, talent for, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And then, and I would get some names, other ones I just had to say, you know, to talent coordinator, but I didn't want my, my tape just to not get noticed. So what I did, I, I went out to Costco and got, uh, 30 tubs of atomic fireballs. And on the side, I put a little sticker that said, think these are hot, try eating fire. Brian does fire eating and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh. And then I stuffed the VHS tape in there. And I sent uh, 30 of them out. Cost like $600 because I went to the wrong place. But uh, at any rate, uh, it went out and I was like, uh, hope something takes. And out of all of them, the one who called was, uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, uh, Roseanne, formerly Roseanne Barr, right. had a uh, talk show for about 12 yeah. minutes. Right? Yeah, exactly. And they booked me on that. And I don't know if the, I forget what the premise was, like maybe weird jobs or something. And, uh, it was clear it was in the ending days when the, uh, when the staff was not really much of a fan of, of Roseanne at that point. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Was, uh, and they asked me to do all the gross out stuff, the sticking nails in my eyes, the hammering a four and a half inch nail in my face or whatever. I didn't realize that at, at the time, but they intentionally didn't tell her. Uh, because they knew she was a crazy germaphobe. And so <laughs> and so here I am. I get up, you know, try to be cute. And I'm like, here, look, I'm sticking a squirt and a nail out of my eye into your hand. And she's screaming. And uh, it was it was funny and fun at the time. They picked up the clip at, uh, you know, for for talk soup. But uh, but the funny part was it was so about to be canceled that in order to watch my own television debut, the time slot they were airing it in Austin was at 2.30 in the morning, which meant it was after the infomercial, but before they switched over to just showing the radar screen for the mm -hmm. weather for yeah. the rest of the night. <laughs> and, uh, and at 2.30 in the morning, I watched it. I was like, oh, my God, I'm on TV. <laughs> 
three three people watching at two thirty. Oh morning. yeah, nobody. Right. <laughs> well, that that's cool though because everyone kind of gets their start somewhere. And now uh, you've really had a, I'd say, a privilege of being able to have a show on National Geographic Channel. Oh, man, you're uh, not kidding. It's yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about working with the Nat Geo team and uh, and getting the show hacking the system off the ground. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, the, 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 the easy thing, the lazy part of me loves the fact that everywhere we went, no matter what we were doing, if we were looking for volunteers, all we had to do is say, we're shooting a thing for national geographic and people are suddenly interested they, they, because there is a legitimacy, you know, nowadays, if you show up with a camera, people are like, is this a trap? Is this a trick? What's going on? But but we were able to rope people in very easily. The downside is, is the reason everyone felt good about National Geographic is because they are so fastidious about their reputation. Every single fact that we said on the show had to be double sourced and double checked. It's uh, we, we not, you know, um, uh, I remember <laughs> I remember like standards of practices. And again, this is what makes them the best. This is what makes them so so stellar is because they're so precise. I remember uh, getting a draft for, for one of the, the, the shooting plans and the opening thing says, Brian says, I'm here on the streets of Los Angeles. And there was a handwritten note from standards and practices that wrote, uh, this seems reasonable. <laughs> like <laughs> I was like, Oh God, I'm in for it now. I have to be very clear and very precise in my language at all times. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, being that meticulous, though, I'm sure they really wanted to produce, produce a quality product in the oh, end. They do. they do. And they did. I mean, it's uh, it was great because hacking the system, about half of the content on hacking the system I had read about, but had no uh, visceral hands on experience with And So for all of that stuff, it was a delight to try it and see it actually work. Uh, and But the, the rest of it is between the work of Jason Murphy and the talented writers that we had, or I guess researchers, uh, uh, Paul and Alex, um, it was great to see them bring stuff to me. And I was like, shut up, this actually works. And they're like, we're going to find out on Thursday. I was like, okay. And, uh, out of everything, there was one moment where there was a particular brand of, um, uh, home safe lock that had a flaw in it where without hitting any of the buttons, you could just time. If you banged it on top and twisted the lock at the same time, it would just open. Right, and, right. Uh, the schedule was so busy that by the time we got to that segment, I had never tried it before. Oh, and, uh, no, and really? I was terrified, right? I was like, you know, it's like the cameras are there. We're all running. It's like we have to get this shot. Now is the moment. We don't have all night. And so I was like, all right, well, here we go. And I banged down on it and I twist. And sure enough, it opened the very first try. And it's almost a problem because when you watch it, it's so good that it looks like we faked it, but but that that's just because it worked so freaking well. Wow, that is that is amazing. <laughs> that just that's that just boggles the mind that you just tried that on the first try and got it. Yeah, so that, that's pretty cool. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a little bit of a couple of personal questions here. This is uh, May second when we're recording this, and uh, upcoming is one of my favorite days of the year, and that is May fourth. Yeah, why do you think that May Fourth is oh, one of my favorite dude, days? May the Fourth be with you. Exactly. Are you a fan? Star Wars, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. So, are are you kind of pumped about the the new movie, even though it's under the uh, the puppetry of Disney doing I all am, this? I am. I am excited about the new movie because it's under the uh, puppetry of Disney. Uh, here's the thing: 
in 2008, I remember having this exact same argument about, well, Disney screw it up, but we were talking about Marvel. Since then, we got the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. We got the Avengers, and I'm not going to lie, man. I'm sitting here as we record this, and all I'm thinking is it's three hours until I get to take my family to go see the Age of Ultron. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, Disney has a phenomenal track record for, for quality product, and uh, to be honest, I, I, I am somebody who deeply adored the original trilogy and went through all the stages of accepting the, the prequels. You know, first you, you deny, you, uh, you denial, anger, bargaining. I've been through all of that, came out the other side, and, and I'd just been so defeated by, uh, by what felt like George Lucas's betrayal. But now, now that we got J.J. Abrams on the case— we got uh, uh, Disney's skillful ability to build entire worlds. Uh, I, I I could not be more excited. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way because for me, I, I grew up with with the trilogies, the, the, the original trilogy. And I, I kind of went through the same phases you mentioned about going through the, the next three, the prequels. But I've been a fan of a lot of the other breakoff uh, items. I, I religiously watched the Clone Wars animated. Uh, which I, I loved greatly, and then uh, I, I some hear of the other great things about that. Uh, it, although, it's a well-executed show. I, w- I was a little apprehensive about you know being forty-five and watching a cartoon, but <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really good. Yeah, I hear uh, uh, my co-host on uh, Cord Killers is still watching Rebels and keeps trying to get me started on yeah. it as well. Rebels is good too. It's a little bit of a of an acquired taste, I'll say that. And and I've read some of the fan fiction and then some of the breakout books as Dude, well. I'll tell you and, what, like in the late '90s, I was deeply into the Star Wars expanded universe. I think that's part of the reason I was I felt so betrayed when the prequels came out. Was I was like every single Star Wars book I've read was better than this crap. Ooh. Yeah, well, and you know, it, it, again, it, it's there. There's going to be so many uh, branches of that, just like there are with a lot of other science fictions, where they've just run off in in fourteen different directions. And uh, you know, recently on one of our podcasts, uh, on the Weird Things podcasts, we had an hour talking to Chris Taylor, who's the author of an extraordinary book called uh, "How Star Wars Conquered the Universe." And it was it was amazing because it, it is, in my opinion, the definitive history of the Star Wars phenomenon, starting back with uh, George Lucas. It made me believe in George Lucas again. It made me see him as he started, as somebody, as a maverick outside indie filmmaker who did things that people said couldn't be done and who kept doubling down, risking the entire company. When you find out how leveraged the all of Lucasfilm was on Star Wars Empire, Empire Strikes Back and again for Return of the Jedi, it's an extraordinary story. And, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of talk of the culture that goes in there. I highly, highly recommend it. It's probably one of my favorite books I've read in the, in the last year. I will check that out for sure. Speaking of books, uh, you're not published yet, are you? Uh, I am actually. Yeah? Tell us about that. Well, I self-published a whole bunch of books. I self-published a, a, a book on event promotion called Pack the House. I self-published The Professional's Guide to Fire Eating. And then we started putting out a, a few ebooks based on Scam School. And then I got a call from the folks over at uh, Skyhorse uh, Sky Publishing. And uh, they, they wanted to do physical copies of the Scam School book. And I got to tell you, man, it's like I, they look great. Uh, they, they, they came out fantastic. They sold really well. It was the number one best-selling magic book uh, for, for a few months when it came out. And right now we're under the wire because we're about to run out of time for its sequel, uh, Scam School Academy. We're hoping to have uh, finished up in the next couple of weeks and then out by 
August or September of this year. Uh, it's going to be even bigger. And we're talking about like 80 to 90 of the best tricks we've ever done on scam school stuff. You could do anytime, anywhere with stuff you'd find sitting around the bar. Too cool. I, okay, I'm ordering one on Amazon right now as we speak. All right on. So. <laughs> nah, th- this is great stuff because, you know, uh, getting getting to that time when you can write a book, and I've had a lot of authors on the show, and they kind of tell me the same story that they try and they try and then, oh, no, it, and I try again, oh, no. But they, they go around and around. Did you kind of have a little struggles getting your first book published? Uh, yeah, you know, I didn't ever for even one second. I, I guess – Part of it is that uh, being out there on the road and trying to sell my show to people, I knew that it was important to have a book because that signals a certain level of uh, legitimacy. So it never occurred to me. All I, I didn't care about the rest of the world knowing that I had a book. I cared about the people I was trying to sell my stage show to knowing that I had a book. So in that regard, it was like, well, just self-publish. The moment you hand them a book, it's clear that you wrote a book and that's it. And uh, And this is – you know, nowadays self-publishing is is very you know well regarded. Of course, like Fifty Shades of Grey is you know and started off as a self-published set of Twilight fan fiction. Uh, but you know, in the early two thousands, there was still a bit of a stink about it. It's not it was wasn't quote unquote real publishing, and uh, it was only after having four books published sell by myself that all of a sudden, you know, and having a platform that a publisher became interested. So weirdly, I say just publish yourself. Just go and until until something better comes along. Brian, it's been so amazing having you on the show today. I want you to uh, throw in here, uh, plug what uh, what URLs you want people to visit. Uh, you know what? There's, there's too many things I'm trying to do at once. Uh, What's the big one you want me to throw out there? writing. Uh, your best bet is to go to my website. It's schwood.com. That's the last part of brushwood, S-H-W-O-O-D.com. And, uh, and of course, I'm pro- out of all the, the social places to interact, I'm probably most active on Twitter, and that's at schwood, S-H-W-O-O-D. And thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thanks for what you're doing, man. I love that you're, you're celebrating some of us uh, uh, quiet folks here in Texas. That's it for this special celebrity edition of Voices of Texas. Don't forget to support this podcast over at patreon.com slash Voices of Texas. And for any show notes and links to our guests, affiliates, anything like that, visit us online at voicesoftexas.com, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Voices of Texas. Until next time, we'll bring you another interesting Texan here on Voices of Texas. Opinions of guests, co-hosts, and others appearing on this podcast are not necessarily the views of its host, producer, or affiliates. No part of this podcast may be reproduced or retransmitted in any way over any medium without express written consent of the producer.